0: Have you ever said, but you promised, when someone you love disappointed you? We all have. Few things are worse than having an expectation that someone will do something or give you something they said they would, and then they don't do it. It's horrible when a friend does this, but even worse if we feel God has let us down. Why this happens and what to do about it in our relationship with God is what our podcast today is all about. Hi, I'm Yvonne Print, and welcome to Bible 805, where you learn to know, trust, and apply the Bible. Let's get into our topic today, which is how to avoid disappointment with God. We're all in desperate need of encouragement after the last couple of years. COVID made 2020 and 2021 a misty nightmare of loss and confusion and unfortunately 2022 isn't looking a whole lot better with the fears of the new variants, what it means in shutdowns and travel restrictions, and the economic uncertainty of inflation and supply chain issues. During all this, The proper place to turn for hope is to God. That is our one true place for encouragement. And that's why false hopes and disappointment with God can be so dangerous. If God can't be trusted to do what he says, why believe in him or serve him at all? Many people have turned away from their faith during the pandemic. And one reason I think this happens is because of false expectations about what God will do. What I want to talk about today is these false expectations and how they don't really come from God or from what's in the Bible, but they come when verses are just taken out of context. And even with the best of intentions, they mislead us, making us think that God promises to do something that He really doesn't. You see, these are false expectations. They come from the assumption that the promises that people just decide to claim are unconditional that any passage that looks good can be taken out of context and claimed and by claimed we mean we say to God I trust you will do that but that's not how the Bible works. Now, I'm going to look at three passages in a minute that I read in a devotional recently that got me really kind of upset, and that's why I'm doing this particular podcast, that all did this, that they claimed things, I believe, totally out of context and without the conditions that are important for their fulfillment. What we need to realize is that many of the promises in the Bible are conditional, now that doesn't sound very good does it but it's true and i'm going to show you what it means but first of all many promises of course in the bible are unconditional and some of god's unconditional promises include number 1 of course that god promises unconditionally to love us in first 1 chronicles 1634 it says give thanks to the lord because he is good his faithful love endures for ever. And in Lamentations 3, 22 and 23, it says, Certainly the faithful love of the Lord hasn't ended. Certainly God's compassion isn't through. They're renewed every morning. Great is your faithfulness, O God. And we sometimes forget that it's an act, actually it's a foundational, unconditional promise of how the world's going to work. In Genesis 8, 22, God says, As long as earth endures, seed time and harvest, Cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall never cease. Day and night, summer and winter, God's love, all of these are unconditional promises. But, not all the promises in the Bible are unconditional. Now, we could list many, many unconditional promises, but there are many, many more of them have an if-then sort of clause. If we do something, then God will promise to do something for us, or make something happen in our lives, or what, whatever. And we need to read the whole passage to really understand that. Now let me give you a very familiar New Testament example. This is in 1 John 1 9 where it says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness. Now Now Now, the promise of this verse is that God will forgive us and purify us from all unrighteousness. Now, that's a great, encouraging, hopeful promise, but it's not unconditional. It doesn't mean we can simply go along, mess up all we want to, disobey God however we want, and then trust, well, he's just going to forgive me anyway. The verse states very clearly, If we confess our sins, then he will forgive. Now, to confess is the Greek word homo and some of the meanings for it include to confess, not to deny, to admit, or to declare oneself guilty of what one is confused of, to declare openly. These definitions make it very clear that ignoring our sin, pretending something didn't happen, and automatically expecting forgiveness is not what the verse promises. Just mumbling something like, well I'm sorry that upset you. When we know that we did something unkind is not what confessing our sins means. Confession is when we say something like, God, I knew I shouldn't have talked that way. Yeah, I was upset, but my mouth was out of control. I know that was wrong. What I said was wrong, and I humbly ask your forgiveness. It's then and only then that God's forgiveness can wash over us like a refreshing shower on a hot day, and we can walk out cleansed. If we need to, we may follow that confession with an apology if our sin harmed another person, or with restitution in the case of more serious sins. But the primary thing, the first thing, is an honest confession before God. Now that's one example of a conditional promise and there are many many more in the New Testament. But I want to move on to the lesson today and I want to share three devotions or three verses out of devotion that I read recently that really disturbed me because it made it seem like God would just do these things automatically regardless of what we're supposed to do. And I'm going to first read these to you and then I will give you the bigger context of them. The three passages are, first one, Malachi 3.11, where it says, I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your field will not drop their fruit before it is ripe, says the Lord Almighty. And then Joel 2.25, where it says, I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten, the great locusts and the young locusts, the other locusts and the locust swarm. And then in Zechariah 4.6, where it says, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by my or by power but by my spirit says the Lord now at first these verses seem to promise and this is what the devotion that I was reading said a protection from economic hardship for God to restore the losses from natural disasters and for God to do great things through us by his power now the assumption of the devotion was that because people suffer God's just going to make everything better and we simply need to believe that he will do that for the com- promises to come true we need to basically claim that they're going to happen we have to believe it we have to pray it and then that will happen now that would be great but is that really true is that how it works or are there conditions are there conditions in the bible for god to fulfill these promises. Now here's what I'm going to do for these three passages. I'm going to read you the verse again, and then I will read you the context of it. Okay? Okay, first of all, Malachi 3.11 where it says, I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your field will not drop their fruit before it is ripe, says the Lord Almighty. Now the suggested idea, application, is God's going to protect you from economic harm if you simply trust Him and claim this verse as true. But let's look at the context. Starting in verse 7 of this chapter, it says in Malachi 3.7, Ever since the time of your ancestors, you've turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet yeah, you rob me. But you're asking, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings, you are under a curse, your whole nation, because you're robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven, and pour out so much blessing, there will not be room enough to store it. And then, right after that, comes verse 11, where it says, If you do these things... Then, in verse 11, it says, I will prevent the pests from devouring your crops and the vines in your field will not drop their fruit before it is ripe, says the Lord Almighty. That is not an unconditional promise. Quite a few things came before it. The conditions are clear. God is not going to bless if His people do not first return to Him and then bring their tithes and offerings into the storehouse. Now, then, many would assume, and there have been many sermons preached on this, that, well, that's easy. If you just give your tithe to the church, then you're guaranteed God's blessing. It's not quite that simple either. God is not sort of subject to formulas that if you do exactly this, then he will do that. This passage is really an important one in that you need to look at the whole historical setting of the passage, what it meant during its time, to see how we truly apply it today. Now here is the historical context of the situation. The prophet Malachi Preached near the end of time of Nehemiah, who is Israel's leader, and he was, he's best known for he was the one that rebuilt the walls around Jerusalem. But he was also just a very strong governmental re- leader. He um, enlisted the aid of Ezra, who was the preacher and teacher, and they had a huge revival going on there in Israel where people returned back to God, rebuilt the walls, and everything was functioning as it should. Then Nehemiah goes back to Babylon for a visit. Now, it took quite a while to come and go in those days. When he returns, sadly, he finds that the revival had died out. People went back to living for themselves and doing just what they wanted to do. They had, and part of this, they had not been bringing the tithes into the temple storehouse. So the priests had left the service of God and had gone back to working their fields. Both private devotion and public worship had floundered. Now, the temple storehouses were empty, and this was a serious situation beyond not just paying for public worship and the support of the priests. The temple storehouses in that day not only paid for the work of the priests, but they were the source of social welfare for the poor. By the selfishness of the people, not only did worship cease, but so did the care of the most vulnerable, those who were of special concern to God. Now, precisely how does all of this translate into application for us today? Even if we want to obey the conditions of the promise that bring the ties into the storehouse, then God will bless, why, the answer is not simple. What does that mean, bring all the ties into the storehouse? Does that mean... They should All of your tithes should go to the church? Is the church the storehouse? Or can some of our tithes go to mission agencies, social service groups in our cities, or to big groups like World Vision? And what's a tithe anyway? Is it on our full paycheck? Is it before or after taxes? Is a strict numerical tithe 10%? Is that enough? Considering when you compare the personal cost of someone making minimum wage and someone who is, say, a or billionaire? And, as some would, would challenge it, is the tithe still valid for the New Testament? Or are we under a greater responsibility in that everything that we have belongs to the Lord, and we're accountable to Him for what we do with it? Now, my purpose here is not to answer all these questions, but we need at least to ask them. The main point is that we realize that God requires that his people obey his commands and attempt to live as he required in the fullness of his commands. He requires that people think not only about themselves, but about the importance of supporting worship and caring for the poor. The full answer to what is required for God to financially bless your life is, isn't isn't just a really simple, do this, then God has to do that. It's much more complex, because God looks at so many parts of this. Now, I don't want to be harsh, but we need to be careful that we don't distort Scripture, because it feels good, and we feel that we deserve certain things from God, because we think we did what He commanded, when most likely, we only did what was easy for us. Now let's go on to the second example in Joel where it says, I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten, the great locust and the young locust, the other locusts and the locust swarm. Now, I've always loved that first. Now who hasn't? Um, personally, I've had some really huge and heartbreaking losses in my life, and I'd, I'd still love to see restoration for some of them. But large or small everyone's had losses in the last few years and we all long for restoration. So what can we expect from God? Are there conditions to that verse? Oh, unfortunately, I shouldn't say that, that shows my disappointment, but Let's press ahead and look at the context of this one. Now, you really need to read the whole book of Joel and all of chapter 2 to see all of the conditions. And there are, unfortunately, really a lot of them for this one. But let me just give you a little sample of them. In Joel uh, chapter 2, verse 12, that comes prior to this promise, Even now, declares the Lord, Return to me with your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Who knows? He may turn and relent and leave a blessing. Now, heartfelt repentance on a national scale is really what that whole chapter talks about. And that's preliminary to God even considering, that he might return and leave a blessing. Again, this promise is not automatic if people don't do anything. Now, again, there's so much we need to consider and especially even on the whole idea of pulling verses out of context that were specifically promised to Israel, and, and we're not going to really go into that today, but at the very least When we come across a promise like this, we need to humbly ask, what would the Lord have us to do? What do we need to repent of in our lives so that we can be pleasing to Him that He might bless us? Now, one more. Now, this one is actually really encouraging and really kind of neat. It um it has some stuff for us to do, but, but, um, but well, just bear with me. It's in Zechariah 4.6, where it says, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might or by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. Now, in some ways, it's really easy to apply this verse. Obviously, we're not powerful in ourselves to do much of anything. But God can do everything through his spirit. A consistent teaching in all the Bible is that God can do what we cannot. And if he wants to use us, he can. In many ways, it's unconditional in that it puts the decision to bless in God's hands, but there is much more to the context of this verse that makes it especially encouraging, and especially to many of us who've traveled the path of life for many decades and maybe still feel we haven't done all we've wanted to do for the Lord. Now, here's the context. Zechariah was the preaching partner of Haggai. Now, those are the two books that these passages come out of that I'm going to be reading, um, Haggai and Zechariah, and both of them were prophets who lived when the Jews returned from the Babylonian captivity. Now, the returning exiles were led by a man named Zerubbabel. Now, he's a lot of people don't have never heard of him, but he's actually kind of a big deal. Um, he was a descendant of David, he was an ancestor of Jesus, and at the time, he was also the very tired leader of refugees struggling to su- survive in a devastated homeland. Now, they'd returned from Babylon, we don't have the exact chronology, but some 18, 20 years earlier. They constructed an altar right away to worship God, that was the reason they came back to the land. But one thing led to another, opposition, threats, exhaustion, Um, and then for some prosperity came along. And for all these reasons, the work on the building of the temple stopped. Now, when that happened, a number of years went by the leaders, the workers wore out that's when God called in his prophets Haggai and Zechariah and Haggai is the one who preached some real rabble-rousing sermons and it's in the midst of the, and then that got them rebuilding again and so that's when this rebuilding starts, that's when this verse is promised, this promise is where the word of the Lord comes to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit now we tend to focus on that promise which is neat but I want you to go back to this man Zerubbabel he was the leader but he quit For whatever reasons, he quit working. And not only does God encourage him with that verse, but this next one, I mean, I I literally broke down in tears when I first read this because of how meaningful it must have been to Zerubbabel when he heard it, when God said, Then the word of the Lord came to me. The hands of Zerubbabel laid the foundation of this temple. His hands will also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you, who dares despise the day of small things, since the seven eyes of the Lord that range throughout the earth will rejoice when they see the chosen capstone in the hands of the bereavable. God is specifically making this promise to a man who is called to a great work, but he quit. He didn't finish it. And now, God promises to joyfully help him complete his work. Now, the context of this is more complex than even these surrounding verses. To really get the impact of it, you have to go back to the previous book, the book of Haggai, which, as I said, they'd all returned back from Babylon under the leadership of Zerubbabel. They'd quit working then um, Haggai uh, comes and starts preaching to them, and this is what he says. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jozadak, the high priest. And this is what the Lord Almighty says. The people say the time has not come yet to rebuild the Lord's house. Well, 18 years had gone by, and they were still dittling around on it. That's not in there. That's my comment. But anyway, then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it time for you yourselves to be living in paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says, Give careful thought to your ways. You planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages, but only to put them in a purse that has holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up to the mountains, and bring down timber, and build my house, so that I may take pleasure in it, and be honored, says the Lord. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little, what you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty, because my house, which remains a ruin, my house remains a ruin while each of you is busy with your own house. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Joshua, son of Jozadak the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the lord their god and the message the prophet haggai and the message of the prophet haggai because the lord their god had sent him and the people feared the lord so the lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and the whole remnant of the people, and they came and began to work on the house of the Lord God Almighty. But now, be strong, Zerubbabel declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, son of Jozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work, for I am with you. And then in Haggai 2.20, it says, From this day on, I will bless you. And that is the situation that the verse in Zechariah refers to, that not by might or by power, God will enable Zerubbabel to finish the work he started almost 20 years earlier. You see, this is a great example of how Don't just pull a verse out of somewhere and name it and claim it or whatever. Look at the context. It will teach you so much and give you a real understanding of how God works. So in conclusion, how do we avoid being disappointed with God? Throughout the Bible, the answer is the same. We cannot pull promises out of context and expect God to fulfill the promise if it has conditions. We need to understand the context and the conditions before we can expect the fulfillment. The context may be as simple as reading and just the whole verse as it is in 1 John one nine, or as complex as understanding the passage in Zechariah where we need to really understand Two prophetical books and the historical situation that they were in, but the overall encompassing answer to avoiding disappointment on specific promises and also to developing a good relationship with God in every area of our walk with Him is to know Him well through His Word. We need to understand how we worked in the past so that we have a true foundation for our expectations in the present. And the way to do this is to read our Bibles. If you know as you've listened to these podcasts. And if not, please go to the links and the articles and the podcasts and the videos that are all on www.bible805.com and you can see all kinds of background on it. But I truly believe that the best way to understand your Bible correctly is to read the whole thing in chronological, historical order. I've done this for many years, and I'm going to be doing it again in the coming year. And my plan, Lord willing, please pray for me, is to resume weekly podcasts and commentary on the readings as we do this. I have a new, modified schedule for you this year, and I'm really excited to share it. On the www.bible805.com website, there are free schedules, journal pages, motivational material, everything that you need to do this. I pray that many of you will join me as we read the entire Bible in chronological, historical order in the coming year. And I promise, if you do, you won't be disappointed. That's all for now. Please check out the notes from this lesson, related resources and helpful links at www.bible805.com In closing, I'm Yvonne Prynne, your fellow pilgrim, writer, and teacher for Jesus, and I'd like to end with this benediction. May you know the invitation of God to move from confusion to clarity, from wandering to rest, from loneliness to knowing you are loved, from turmoil to peace, from wherever you are on your spiritual journey to a growing knowledge of God's Word and in your personal relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.